Um, let's begin Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It tells us, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. And say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Let me read that again. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. And what's interesting in the world today is in spite of homicide bombings and terrorist threats and the general unpopularity of Israel in the world, Jews around the world are making aliyah to Israel in droves. Aliyah is the Hebrew word for going up, for ascending. And it's the word that's been attached to Jews leaving places where they've lived for hundreds of years even and going back to Israel in spite of... The, the so-called dangers or threats that seem to be there right now. I want to share with you an article entitled, Fearful Jews Leaving France. Tel Aviv, Israel, July 28, 2004. Just ten days after Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon enraged French leaders by urging France's Jews to leave for Israel, a group of 200 French Jews arrived to start a new life in the Jewish state, with Sharon at the airport to greet them. As one immigre told CBS News correspondent Mark Phillips, you wear something to say you are Jewish and you have difficulty. We are afraid. It's simply that we are afraid. At a welcoming ceremony, Sharon appeared to try to correct the damage from his earlier statement, saying anti-Semitism threatens the Western world without singling out France. We therefore, he says, very much appreciate the determined actions of the French government as well as the French president's stand against anti-Semitism. We hope that his determination will serve as an example to other countries as well. Softening his earlier appeal, Sharon said Jews must come to Israel not because of hatred or fear. Jews must immigrate because it is their homeland. Emerging from the plane, the immigrants saying, and I'm not going to even try and pronounce it, but it means, We bring peace to you, a traditional Hebrew song of greeting. A heavyset man with a beard wearing a white shirt and skullcap danced his arms above his head as he came into Israel. Carol ben Gwiji, close, 41, carrying a dog under her arm, said, In five or ten years, all the Jews of France will be in Israel because of anti-Semitism. Sharon said, Welcome to Israel. Welcome home. Also at the airport to greet the immigrants were opposition Labor Party leader Shimon Perez and Israel's two chief rabbis. The group included 50 children and 55 university students, according to the Jewish agency, the body that deals with immigration to Israel. In a July 18th speech to visiting Jewish American leaders, Sharon told them that France was host to the wildest anti-Semitism. If I have to advocate to our brothers in France, I will tell them one thing, he said, move to Israel as soon as possible. The French Foreign Ministry quickly issued a terse statement calling the remarks unacceptable and demanding an explanation. The next day, French President Jacques Chirac called on the Israel, Israeli Prime Minister to explain his remarks and said that until he does, Sharon would not be welcome in France. Who is? I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? Israeli media later uh, reported that Chirac sent a message to Israeli Pri uh, President Moshe Katsav saying he now considered the incident closed and Chirac's office could not refer confirm the reports. Now listen to this. About half those who arrived on Wednesday's flight from Paris came under an Israeli government program initiated a year ago bringing French Jewish groups to Israel. And by the way, it's happening all over the world, not just from France. The other newcomers also started planning to immigrate long before Sharon's speech last week, immigration ministry officials say. France is widely viewed in Israel as biased in favor of the Palestinians. The French Jewish community, at 600,000, the third largest in the world, tends to be strongly pro-Israel, creating friction with a Muslim population in France of, get this, almost 5 million. The latest French interior ministry figures show 510 anti-Jewish acts or threats in the first six months of 204, compared to 593 for all of last year. While France has strengthened security at Jewish institutions and enacted tougher punishments for people convicted of such crimes, a sense of uneasiness and betrayal has some Jews questioning where they belong. 
According to the Israeli government, 7,024 immigrants have come from France alone since 2000. From a low of 1,160 in 2001 to a high of 2,385 in 2002. And in the first half of 2004, 647 French Jews have immigrated to Israel. I want to encourage you all to bend an ear toward Israel in the news. To keep listening. I've said this before, I've said it in the past, but as we continue on in Bible study and other things crop up and other things interest us, sometimes it's easy to forget. But keep your ears bent toward Jerusalem, toward Israel. Keep listening. And not just for curiosity's sake. Not just because, oh, I wonder what's happening with the Jews now. Oh, I wonder if there was another bombing. Oh, I wonder what's going on there. Not just for fascination, but because Israel is a key component in God's prophetic program. Israel is key. What happens with Israel, what we see going on with Israel, is incredibly important in what God God is doing in the fulfillment of prophecy. And we live in a day and an age where we can see things taking place around us. Where we can watch and recognize prophecy in Scripture happening. Where we can see it taking place with Israel. Ignoring or lessening Israel's role would require ignoring or lessening God's word. As we've seen, reaching all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God made unconditional covenants with Israel. Covenants that do not depend on the Jews to uphold. The Jewish failure to keep God's covenants is irrelevant. God made covenant himself toward Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to the Jewish people. There was only one covenant of all the covenants of God that was conditional, and that was the Mosaic Law. Every other covenant God made with Israel was unconditional and eternal. The Lord loves Israel. He has not given up on Israel. And the closer we get to the end of Genesis as we study through, the deeper we will find ourselves in the story of Israel, a story that has continued for some 4,000 years. We're approaching the Exodus. And that's going to be a fascinating study. But even now, Genesis 42, we see more of Israel. We begin to get deeper into Israel. And with that in mind, let's get into our study tonight. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. And then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Now you may recall Genesis 41, the chapter prior to this, that Pharaoh had a dream. Two dreams, actually. A dream of seven fat cows being swallowed up by seven ugly, gaunt, skinny cows. And then followed that, he followed that with another dream. Seven plump ears of corn swallowed up by seven scorched, thin ears. And Joseph came along, pulled out of prison, and comes up to Pharaoh and interprets the dream. He says, a couple of things, Pharaoh, you need to know. Number one, the seven plump ears of corn, the seven fat cows, that's seven years of plenty that's about to come on the land. Seven years of absolute wealth and plenty in all of, all of Egypt. It's going to be amazing. Greater than you've seen. But that's going to be followed by seven years of severe famine. Seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And as we've already seen, it's a story in type of the tribulation that Jesus prophesies is yet to come. The Bible calls it also the time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. And we saw on Sunday, mentioned this briefly, that prophetically seven years of famine followed seven years of plenty. And it's entirely likely that the seven years of tribulation will follow seven years of plenty. And and I made the point on Sunday that we live in the most plenteous time in the world's history. Never on planet Earth have we been so wealthy. Never has there been so much, not just in America, but across the planet. Yes, there are still pockets of problems. Yes, there's still poverty. But the planet has never been as rich as it is right now. Well, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, and there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he will be saved from it. Well, Jacob was having trouble right now, back in this day as well. He's facing a famine. He's hungry. His sons are hungry. They're having trouble. (laughs) And his boys are standing around clueless and dumbfounded. I love what Jacob says to him. He says, What are you standing around staring at each other for? What are you guys, clueless? Come on. Do something. Have some action in your life. I hear those grain down in Egypt. Go get it. Now notice this in verse 3. 
How many of the brothers went down? In the Bible, the number 10 has a very significant um, meaning to it. In biblical numerology, does anybody remember what 10 signifies or represents in the Bible? The law. The law. Why? Because of the Ten Commandments. And when the number 10 is used in the Bible, oftentimes it implies or it focuses or, or it points to the law. And so we have Jacob sending 10 sons down, reminding us of the law. And the law says, let's go down and buy bread. Let's go buy. Let's go purchase. We've worked for it. We've earned it. Let's go get it. But grace says, you can't afford it. I'll buy it for you. You can't pay for it. Let me provide it. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our schoolmaster, our tutor, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. That word tutor is pedagogus. It's where we get our English word pedagogue, schoolmaster. And you think of the harsh, rough schoolmaster, and that's what the law is. That's what it was. A schoolmaster who would wrap you across the knuckles and get you to focus on the fact that you're never good enough. You can never quite make it. You can never quite stand up and, and, and do The comedian Brian Regan talks about um, the day of the spelling bee. He calls it public humiliation. You know, line up all the kids. He says, that's great for little egos. And have them try and spell words that they can't spell. And one by one, you get to sit down in front of your friends. It's a great thing. He said, I always appreciated the kid who got up there first and said, you know, he didn't want to stand there for three hours with the other kids, so he'd say, K-A-T, cat, I'm out of here. And then he'd walk by your desk and go, I know there are two T's. <laughs> the law is a schoolmaster. The whole point of the law, Romans 5 tells us the purpose of the law was to show sin, was to increase sin. It was like shining a big flashlight in the corners and the nooks and crannies of sin. And suddenly now with the law in front of us, oh man. We had to do all of that? We had to be that good? Well, we can't be that good, but the law, schoolmaster says, work at it. Work at it. Study hard. Get it done. You can do it. Stand up. Be counted. Well, Jacob's ten boys are about to learn a fantastic, but at first, very frightening truth. That provision cannot be bought. They're going to go up to Joseph and they're going to try and buy bread, but folks, he's not going to let them buy it. The money will keep ending up in their sacks, as we'll see in the story. They can't purchase it. The law cannot purchase the provision of God. Flip real quickly in your Bibles over to the book of John. John chapter 6. This reminds me of another great story. John chapter 6 and verse 4. John 6, 4. I'll begin reading that to you. You can catch up. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Okay, that the teacher is now going to test the pupil. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there is a lad here who has five bar barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Now get the scene in mind. There are thousands of people here. And Jesus, who, by the way, was a homeless man and didn't have anything to give, besides his teaching and his healing and his ministry, which was enough, more than enough. But Jesus stands up and says, You know, guys, these people look hungry. Let's give them something to eat. Let's get something for him. And Philip, Philip says, <laughs> you realize how much that will cost? And then Andrew comes up. And this is comical to me. Andrew says, we got some bread and fish. The guy's got a little sack lunch. And you can almost see. You know, Andrew then begins to look out at the crowd. Oh, well that's not good. And we don't have enough here, Jesus. And Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, verse 10. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Notice it's the men were numbered at 5,000. So that's not including women and children. This was a big crowd of people. And Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. 
Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. They gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, Truly the prophet who is to come in, who has come into the world. And this big potluck, Jesus style, is not just about feeding the people. There's something much more important going on here than making sure that they're fed so they can continue to listen to the teaching. It is a teaching. The feeding of the 5,000 was in and of itself a teaching. Jesus was saying, look at this. We have a crowd of people here and you cannot afford to feed them. You cannot afford to provide for them. Let me show you what the Lord does. Not only can the Lord afford to provide, but He provides so much there's leftover. And that's grace. That's God's grace in our lives. That there's always leftover with the Lord. He's teaching that it is not possible to purchase God's provision. You can't do it. Apostles, pull together your funds. What have we got? We've got five loaves and a couple of fish. And John's got a nickel. That's all we've got, Lord. Nothing here. Alright, let me show you what God can do. You can't afford it. God can. Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. What? You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come, the Lord says, to me. What does this all mean? The law, the ten sons, going down to buy bread in Egypt. The law desires to purchase salvation, to earn it, to work for it, to be good enough. But grace, the Lord, desires to provide salvation. So even though Jacob's sons go unwittingly to Joseph with money to buy provision, he will never take it. Neither will Jesus take your, your, your purchase, your money or mine. One more thing, the provision of grain for Jacob's family during the famine cost Joseph dearly. It was paid for. It was paid for with Joseph's life. The fact that Joseph's life was lost, he, he was being brought up by his father. You know the story by now. And at 17, his life changed, correct, changed direction, changed course, and he never got back home. In fact, Joseph will never get back home until his bones are carried there in the Exodus. He will live out his life in Egypt. He paid for it. In the same way, the provision of God is paid for. It can't be purchased. It's already been bought by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 4. The story goes on. Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm will befall him. Real quickly, I don't think that Jacob trusted the other ten brothers. In fact, to this point, I think if you look back, there are indications that Jacob didn't really believe Reuben and the others about Joseph. Some things here are not quite right. I'm going to send you ten, but Benjamin stays home with me. I'm not entrusting my youngest son to you. What's the deal with Benjamin? Well, Benjamin is the last final tie to the love of his wife, Rachel. Remember, Jacob's wife, Rachel, gave him Joseph and Benjamin. And as far as Jacob is concerned, Joseph's dead. All he's got left is Benjamin, and Benny is not going down. Benny is staying home. The rest of the boys can go down. Now, it's amazing what happened to Joseph. Let's read on. Uh, it says, The sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine in the land was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to them with their faces to the ground. Fulfillment of Joseph's dream. In this verse we see it happen. The stalks of wheat in the field bowing down to Joseph's stalk of wheat as he dreamed so many years before many years before. It's amazing to me that Joseph in his life goes from being a slave to a ruler. A man who has nothing to a man who now has unlimited resources on the earth. That's what happens, gang, when you give your life to Jesus as well. You go from one who has nothing to one who has the unlimited resource of the Father. We'll talk more about this. But again, like Jesus, 
Joseph has limitless resources and Jesus has the unlimited resource of God to care for all my needs. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Listen to that again. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What does God supply? All our needs. Do you believe Him? Do we really think that God is going to supply all our needs or not? Now let's do a little math here. Back in Genesis 37 verse 2, we're told that Joseph was 17 when his brothers determined to do him in. They were going to kill him, then they sold him. And he was 17 years old at the time, right? Well then, we're told in Genesis 41-36 that Joseph was 30 when he was elevated to the position of prominence over Egypt, a public ministry, like Jesus was 30 in his public ministry. And this was the beginning of the seven years of plenty. Now, in Genesis 42, the famine is beginning. So Joseph would be seven years older, he would be 37. So, doing a little math, doing a little subtraction, how many years have passed since Joseph was originally betrayed and rejected by his brothers? 20 years. It's been 20 years in the life of Joseph. Now, this is probably just me, but I find it interesting that it's been 20 years for Joseph. 20 years have passed. It interests me because from the time of Jesus' rejection by the sons of Israel to the present day, 2,000 years have passed. And we see a similar number. Now you may say, okay, well Rick, that's just an interesting coincidence. And I wonder if it really is. Because the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes in His glory, the people of Israel, like Jacob's sons, will bow down before Him. And at this time, Israel will be brought back into a relationship with God through Jesus. Just as Israel's sons are about to be brought back into a relationship with Joseph. But we're going to see more on this in a moment. Look at verse 7. They bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. And it says, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now why is Joseph speaking roughly? Oh, well, it's because after all this time, he's bitter. Man, Joseph's angry. He's tired of, uh, he's angry with his brothers, frustrated with them. Here they are in front of him, and it's all bubbling up. So he's speaking harshly. What do you come here for? What do you want? And that's not it at all. Joseph is dealing with his brothers, and will deal with his brothers through this chapter in something that's called conviction. Joseph is going to take his brothers through a process of realizing what they've done, of leading them into conviction. He brings it on. And the reason, folks, is you cannot be saved until you realize you need to be saved. Conviction. God uses conviction. God uses, by the way, guilt in our lives. Guilt is not a bad thing. Though psychology would say, find ways to relieve yourself, to alleviate your guilt... God gave us guilt for a reason. To convict us. To stop us dead in our tracks and to turn us around. Folks, I, I continue to think, and, and as I read and study, to believe that God will do anything to save us. Even if it hurts. Even if it's painful. Even if it's difficult. God wants us home. And so He uses conviction. A couple of things that conviction does, by the way. Number one, conviction removes calluses. Conviction removes calluses. Let me ask the question, why does Bible study sometimes make me feel bad? And the answer is conviction. We sit there and we listen to the Word and we get convicted. And we get challenged and we think, man, I'm not doing that. Oh, that's so unlike me. Oh, man, why do I have to be here this morning? Why am I here this evening? Oh, oh, oh that was painful. And we get in our cars driving away going, ow, that was bad. It was good. It was God's Word, but it was bad. It hurts. Conviction removes calluses. What do you mean? Folks, before reading and knowing God's Word, I tend to feel pretty good about myself. I tend to look at my life and go, I'm a good guy. I'm pretty nice to other people. And I'm blind to the things that I do that are wrong. But when I start to read God's Word and to see the standard, especially when I'm looking at the schoolmaster, ah... I recognize, my eyes are open, and suddenly I become very sensitive to sin. Very, you know how hard it is? Have you recognized how difficult it is to leave a Wednesday night Bible study or a Sunday morning and immediately go to a rated R movie? 
You don't do it. You, you put it off to another night. <laughs> because you're not going to do it that night. Because you're sensitive. You're aware. You're thinking about it. You're focused on it. Man, I get into God's Word and it hurts. It's painful at times. And it's because God is picking calluses off of my heart. He's making me sensitive. He's bringing into my mind and my life awareness of sin so that I won't fall prey to it. But let me encourage you not to shy away from that kind of pain. It is necessary heartache because the more I'm in the Word, the more sensitive I become to sin. And once I see sin in my life, I begin to see grace. And as I accept grace in my life, then I truly fall in love with the Lord. Jesus in Luke chapter 7 was at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And as he sat down to eat with Simon, Simon didn't treat him very well. Simon wasn't a very gracious host. Jesus sat down, and normally the host would at least provide water to wash your feet. But Simon provided none. And Luke chapter 7, verse 40, the story continues on. Jesus answered to Simon, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, well, say it, teacher. One other thing I forgot to mention. While Jesus was sitting there in the house, a woman came in, a, a, a lowlife, a prostitute. As she was weeping and began to allow her tears to wash all over Jesus' muddy feet. And then as his feet became wet with her weeping, she took her hair and began to wipe down his feet and to clean them up. And Simon is horrified. The religious stuffed shirt is sitting there going, oh, this is in my house. And this guy obviously doesn't know what kind of person this is. I'm wondering how Simon knew what kind of person this was. But anyway, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And Jesus said a money lender had two debtors, and one owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of the men will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my hand with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, Jesus gives us a living parable. He helps us to understand. Man, when I recognize sin, when I'm convicted of sin in my life, and then I see grace, it makes me love God all the more. It's the upside of conviction. Conviction removes calluses, but conviction also ripens compassion. It ripens compassion. The more convicted I am of my sin and the more I fall into grace, the more compassionate I become of other people and their sin. So if you ever feel squirmy while you're studying the Word, that's okay. It's a good thing. Squirminess is not bad. God will now use Joseph to convict and bring Israel's boys around. Now Joseph recognizes the brothers. Back in our story, Genesis 42, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And they're not going to recognize him for a chapter or so. But it's interesting to note how Stephen describes this story in Acts chapter 7, verse 12. Stephen, in recounting the whole history, says, When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. When did they recognize, when will they recognize who Joseph is? The second time, but not the first time. Just like Israel. Israel did not recognize Jesus the first time, but they will recognize him the second time. The second time around, they will see who he is. And this is, this is a thing to notice in Israel's history. You'll see this a lot. It's a pattern. Israel has a tendency to reject the first time and accept the second time. You see it here with Joseph. His brothers rejected him and later will accept him. You see it in the life of Moses. Moses stands up and he wants to fight for his people. Even to the point where he kills an Egyptian. And he's rejected and driven out. And it's only the second time around when he's received as a liberator. Joshua. 
Joshua comes back with the other 11 spies, Joshua and Caleb, and they report to the people and say, we can take this land. But 10 of the spies said, no way, 10 likes the law. No way we can do it. No way, it's too hard, it's too much. And so the people rejected Caleb and Joshua until God brought him around the second time and they received him as their leader. David, first time, first time he came out for God, he was rejected. You remember? It was in the Valley of Elah. He went down there to check on his brothers who were supposed to be fighting for Israel against the Philistines. And he looks across the valley and here's this big, dumb giant named Goliath who's taunting Israel. And all of Israel is scared to death. And little David says, what are you scared of? Isn't God on our... Last time I checked, God was fighting with us, right? God's on our side. And yet his brothers rejected him. But the second time, David is accepted, anointed as king. Well, Israel has a long history of rejecting their hero the first time and then receiving their hero, their liberator, their leader, and their king the second time. And they will do that with Jesus. But in the meantime, back to our story. Verse 8 tells us that Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Now, for now, they don't recognize him. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. His true identity is hidden from Israel's sons. In the same way, Jesus' true identity is hidden from Israel's sons today. And this is an incredibly important truth, something to really grasp tonight. I told Cheryl this afternoon, tonight's one of those studies where when we actually get to the meat of it, Either we're going to skip right across the top of it and completely miss it, or we're going to catch the depth. There is something phenomenal here, so listen for it. The true identity of Jesus remains hidden from Israel today. Hidden. They're blind to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15 says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. And as we've already seen in chapters 42 and 42 chapters of Genesis, we've seen pictures, types of Jesus, all over the place. As a matter of fact, after you study this much of Genesis, you almost have to put your Bible down, step back and say, Wait a minute, why can't they see it? Why can't present-day Jews see Jesus in their Old Testament? Why can't they read Isaiah 53 and see the crucifixion or Psalm 2 and understand the crucifixion or Psalm 22? How is it that they miss these scriptures and can't see their Messiah? We see it. It's obvious, clear. Jesus is here. Why don't they see? Because their eyes have been blinded. Because Jesus the Messiah is hidden from them. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize Him. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 says a partial hardening has happened to Israel. And I want you to understand this is God's doing. Partially. A hardening has happened to Israel. Gang, the children of Israel can't see, literally can't see that Jesus is their provider. Toughest people in the world to convert to Christianity are Jews. And there are many organizations out there that are trying very hard to do it. But it is not easy work. Because it's an uphill battle right now. There is a blindness on Israel. Why is that? Two reasons. Number one, the Jews made a decision. They had opportunity to accept Jesus, but they made a decision to reject their Savior. John 1.11 says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive him. The Bible's very clear about this. Jesus came first to Israel, then to the Gentiles. He said it two different times. In Matthew 10:6 and in Matthew 15:24, he said, "I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." He even says it to the point that when a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, comes to him and asks for a healing for her daughter, he says, "Look, <laughs> I've come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and feed it to the dogs. And the Gentile woman said, yeah, but even the dogs have to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. In other words, I'll take anything you'll give me because I believe in you. And Jesus says, go, your daughter is well. You've got great faith. And he was impressed by her. But he made it very clear in his ministry. I came to Israel. I am here for Israel. They are my primary concern while I walk these 33 years on planet Earth. Israel first. 
And then the Gentiles. Paul says it like this, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 2 verse 9. Paul says, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. See, there is no partiality, but there is a plan. And so part of the reason that Israel is blind, that the Jews can't see Jesus right now, is because they made a decision. But secondly, and I am convinced of this by reading scripture now, the Lord made a determination. The Jews decided against Jesus, but the Lord made a determination that a hardening of Israel would happen. Why? Because that hardening created a saving vacuum for the Gentiles that would pull us in. Because Israel rejected and God then blinds them from making an acceptance, now the Gentiles, the way has been opened wide. Paul says in Romans 11.29, he mentions the partial hardening that has happened to Israel, but he says it happens until the fullness, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There is a system, a period of time here where the Jews will not see until the fullness of the Gentiles. Luke 21:24. Jesus said, Jerusalem herself will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled and gained for the last 2,000 years. What we've called the church age, we are in the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Jews are on hold. Israel is on hold. The last 2,000 years, it's Gentile time. And it's all part of God's massive, amazing plan. Well, but does God still love Israel? Does He still have a plan for Israel? Those of you who have heard me teach very long, you know how I feel about this, but flip to Romans chapter 11. This is so critically important that Paul, among there are four times in all of his writings where Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this, and this is one of those times. Be sure you understand this. Get this down. It's critical. It is key. Israel is key to God's plan of prophecy, and God has a plan that still involves Israel. Romans chapter 11 and verse 11. Listen very carefully to this. Now you need to know as you're flipping there, I grew up not believing this. I grew up thinking that the time of Israel was past, it was over, that the church now was new Israel. And there was no more for the Jews because they rejected God. And it wasn't until I started looking at the covenants that I understood, wow, God's covenants are unconditional. God promised these things would happen, regardless of how the Jews responded. And then I came to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and it literally busted my belief system wide open. Romans 11, 11, Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, this is amazing. Three things are happening right here in this verse. He says, Israel, first choice. They didn't fall down when they tripped, when they missed it, when they rejected Jesus. Did they? No. That's not what happened. Something else happened, Paul said. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Three things are happening here. God comes first to Israel, offers them first right of acceptance of Jesus, and they reject. And by that rejection, and God knew this would happen, God now takes the, the gospel to the Gentiles. But by taking the gospel to the Gentiles, a third thing happens. The Jews are made jealous, and they will be pulled back in. It's an amazing, amazing plan. God knew the heart of man so well and the heart of the Jew so well. He understands his people. He knew they would reject him. He also knew that they would be jealous that his word went out to the Gentiles. But ultimately that very jealousy, their very nature, would drive them back to Messiah. Look down at verse 25. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. 
Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Not their covenant with me, my covenant with them. Why does the Lord do this? For His name's sake. Because He promised He would. Paul goes on and says, From the standpoint of the Gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now he puts it into practical terms to understand. Just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all has shut up all in disobedience. Why? So that He may show mercy to all. He's worked us, folks. <laughs> he has. It's a holy working, and it's awesome. Because it worked. Verse 33. Paul just breaks out into this praise, and no wonder, when you finally begin to see and get the depth, the wonder, the mystery of God's plan, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who, has became, who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again from him all, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever Amen Paul is just blown away by what he's just written down he says, wow, that's just amazing. It's incredible. It's terrific. God's plan. And it's at work. The Lord made a determination. His plan is almighty. He came to and through Israel, knowing exactly how Israel would respond, exactly what it would take to get salvation from Israel and out to the Gentiles, and then exactly what it will take to rein Israel back in. God's going to do it. God's going to do that. Verse 9 of chapter 42, back to Genesis. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about his brothers. And he said to them, you are spies. <laughs> you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Now this is, again, a comical situation because Joseph is in his splendor. He is dressed as an Egyptian. He is walking like an Egyptian. He is talking like an Egyptian, by the way. As we'll discover later in the chapter, he's using an interpreter, and he's speaking Egyptian, and the interpreter is speaking then Hebrew, and the Hebrew brothers are speaking Hebrew back to the Egyptian interpreter, which Joseph understands what they're saying, but he's playing a game here. He's, he's working them over. He is convicting these boys, and they are scared to death, these ten brothers. They're worried. They're freaking out. It goes on and says in verse 10, They said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man, and we are honest men. Your servants are not spies. We are honest men. Really? Really? Okay. Verse 12, Yet he said to them, No, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, and they must not be able to understand this, because they're just, they're just little, the Hebrew family over here, they're pretty small. And this powerful ruler in Egypt is worried about them? So they're trying to get it. And they say, verse 13, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Really? <laughs> and Joseph said to them, It's as I said to you, you're spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Do you know what Joseph's doing here? He is gleaning as much information about his family as he can, and his brothers are talking like parrots. They're so frightened, they're saying everything. First thing that comes to their mind, well, there were 12 of us brothers, now our youngest one's back there, and our, there's another brother who's dead now. But, you know, he's back with our father. And what has Joseph learned? Benjamin's alive and safe at home. Jacob, dad, is still alive and safe at home. Joseph's getting all the information that he needs, that he desires about his family. This is amazing intelligence on the part of Joseph as he plays him like this. And in the process, we ask the question, what is Joseph's interest in Benjamin? Because now he's saying, you guys, nine of you are staying. One's going back and you're going to bring me 
your youngest brother. Why? Because Benjamin is the only full brother of Joseph. He's the only one who also was born of Rachel, his mother. Benjamin, little brother Benjamin, who he hasn't seen in years. I think about the way that I watch my kids and the way that Corey and Hayden play, older brother and little brother. And, and that would be a similar scenario there. And the older brother loves the little brother and he wants to see him badly. So he wants to get Benjamin where he is. By the way, a little side note, and I think this is interesting. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul was also the Apostle to the Gentiles. The Apostle to the Gentiles. There's always a Benjamin aspect in Israel. There's always a little Benjamin. What do you mean? Well, if, if the first ten sons are kind of a picture of the law and, and the blindness of Israel, Benjamin, he's a picture of those handful of Jews who have seen, who have accepted Jesus, who do love the Lord, who today are not really Jews, they're Christians. Christian Jews, Messianic Jews. Well, anyway, verse 17 just something to ponder there. So he put them all together in prison for three days. And there it is again, one of our references, three days. But this three-day reference, I don't believe, reminds us of the resurrection. The third day resurrection. It's three days and it's important, it's critical. And some of you may know where I'm going with this. We've talked about this before. This third day reference is not a parallel to the resurrection. But think about this. Consider this. The sons of Israel have been three days in captivity. He puts them in captivity for three days. And Israel today has been in captivity for three days. The last time that Israel was a unified nation under the reign of Solomon was 1000 BC. It was 3000 years ago. And after Solomon's reign, the nation split between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and kind of began to fall apart. The northern ten tribes of Israel ultimately were taken into captivity in Assyria. And the southern tribe of Judah, who, where we get the Jews, Judah, was taken into Babylon but, but came back. And the Jews, the, the Judahites, that southern tribe, that southern nation still exists today. But the ten northern tribes were scattered. And Jewish scholars today would say... They don't even exist anymore. They are so spread out into the world that no one even knows where they are. Let me tell you something amazing. God knows exactly where they are. Ezekiel chapter 48 tells us that God is going to regather all of Israel back. And he's going to give them their particular allotments of land based on their tribes in the promised land again in that time of the millennium. God knows exactly where they are. When we don't know where they are, God does. Revelation also refers to this as well. But for 3,000 years, the ten tribes have been scattered, locked up, if you will, in obscurity, up to the present day. Now Peter says in 2 Peter 3.8, Don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. 3,000 years. Three days. Okay, Rick, this is another stretch. Listen to Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. This is Israel, by the way, speaking. Israel's response to God's judgment. Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. And He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. Place that in history. He will revive us after two days. It's prophetic, folks. And if a day is like a thousand years, He will revive us after two thousand years. And on the third day, on that third day, He will raise us up again that we may live before Him. And I submit to you, it's in the time of the millennium that we are very close to. It's been three thousand years. Like the brothers were in captivity here for three days, the northern tribes of Israel have been captive to obscurity for 3,000 years. But Israel says on that third day, God is going to raise us up. And we're going to live before Him again. Genesis 42 verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. Quick note, God there is Elohim. Joseph makes a slip. He's speaking Egyptian to them, but when he says God, he says Elohim. That's the Hebraic word for God. They should have caught it. What is this second in command over all of Egypt 
saying he fears Elohim for. He fears our God. Well, what's going on here? But they're, they're too scared. They're knocking on their boots. They don't get it. They completely miss it. There's something else about this. Joseph is dressed as an Egyptian. He's speaking as an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. And his brothers, they wouldn't pay attention to that. They ignored that. They wouldn't accept him. They wouldn't see that he was one of theirs. And in my notes, I had written down that it it makes me think of modern-day Jews. That I can stand up and with a son of Israel, I can call out the name Elohim. I can pray to Yahweh, Jehovah. Same God. But they have a hard time seeing that. They don't recognize me as a brother. Not yet. It's hard to see me because I, I look so different. I talk so different. I'm a Gentile. And they were thinking of Joseph as a Gentile, though he was truly and honestly a brother. Folks, when we actually finish our Bible study of the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, when we get through those first five, any Jewish friends that you might know would be stunned to find out how much of their Bible you know. So anyway, back to our text, verse 19. How do we know that Joseph is speaking another language? It tells us, he says, if you're honest, men... Let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, go. Carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And then verse 21, they said to one another. To one another. Okay, to one another. They're now speaking to each other. Truly we're guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. And yet he would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you? Do not sin against the boy. And you would not listen. And now comes the reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, They did not know, however, that Joseph understood. For there was an interpreter between them. Interpreter standing there. And he's speaking the Hebrew when Joseph speaks the Egyptian. And so they don't understand that he understands that he's now listening to his brothers. And what does he hear after all this conviction? He hears their confession. Finally they recognize and they confess, what have we done? We shouldn't have, it was, this is why. We are being paid back for this sin in our lives. And amazing, Reuben even says, now comes the reckoning in his blood. Now his blood is on us. Now we're paying back for the blood of Joseph In Matthew 27, verse 25, all the people said about Jesus before he was led away to the cross, his blood be on us and on our children. It's the one line, by the way, that was cut from the subtitles in Mel Gibson's The Passion. Because it was deemed by many in Hollywood anti-Semitic, even though that's exactly what happened. It is what the Jewish people said. His blood be on us and on our children. And though they didn't realize it at the time, though they meant it for ill, it saves them. The very fact that they would say that. Yes, that's the point. His blood be on us. Because if His blood is not on us, we can't be saved. We have to have the blood of Jesus. It is because of the blood of Jesus that we have our salvation. In the same way, if not for Joseph's blood being on their heads, if they hadn't pulled this nasty trick on their brother, they wouldn't be saved. They would be back down in Canaan, or up in Canaan right now. Joseph there, starving to death, without an inroad to get grain. But God looked ahead, and by Joseph's pain, he's saving their lives. Obviously, Joseph didn't really die, but they believed their actions got rid of him, and their actions have now come back on them. Jesus, on the other hand, really did die. And it's only by His blood being honest that we can be saved from the famine of sin. Listen, Israel will be saved in the tribulation. The Bible is clear about that. But, and don't miss this, but they will be saved by recognizing Jesus. They will be saved because of His blood. They will be saved because they will become Christians. They won't be saved just because they're Israel. There still needs to be an acceptance of the blood of Christ. Well, verse 24 And we see the great love of Joseph for his brothers. He turned away from them and he wept. He turned and he wept. His weeping over his brothers is moving. Clearly he loves them dearly. But no one loves Israel the way the Father and Jesus do. By the way, Jesus wept over his brothers too. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The last part of verse 24, Joseph returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Why Simeon? Why out of the ten brothers does Simeon get picked to stay behind while the other nine go home? And I thought about this all week and and my most biblical and literate answer I can give you is I have no idea. (laughs) But there's a fascinating picture here anyway. Something about present day Israel again. Because Simeon means hearing. Simeon means hearing. And so their hearing is bound while they head back to the promised land. I was talking to Jim right before we started. The hearing of Israel is bound. There is a mass return, aliyah, back to Israel happening today. But the hearing is still bound. They still don't get it. They are very secular in thought as they're returning to Israel, to the homeland, to our people but not yet to their God. They still miss that point. They don't hear a thing regarding Jesus. Not yet. They're back in the land, but they don't understand. Matthew chapter 13, I'll read this to you quickly, in verse 10. Matthew 13, 10. Jesus' disciples came and they said to him, Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus answered them, and he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted, listen folks, by extension. And the reason we see so much Jesus all over the Bible is because to you it has been granted to know the mysteries. It has been revealed. The Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart, shows you, teaches you, reveals things to you that literally someone outside of Jesus reads the same words and says... I don't get it. It makes no sense. Jesus goes on and says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What's he talking about here? I believe the Spirit. Whoever has the Spirit will receive an abundance. We'll understand so much more. But whoever does not have, even what he has, his very life, will be taken from him. And Jesus says, Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their ears, with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and I would heal them. The prophecy is being fulfilled. God knew ahead of time that Israel would have a hardened heart. That Israel would not be able to hear that even as they returned to the promised land, their hearing would be bound as Simeon is bound while the rest of the brothers go home by the way it's a great gift an amazing gift to be able to hear the word of the Lord don't don't miss that you know as you leave here tonight if you've heard anything that clicks that makes sense to you would you take a moment and just praise God and thank him for giving you hearing because he didn't have to But to you he has revealed the great mysteries. John 20, 29. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. And you believe even though you have not seen. And that is a great gift. Genesis 42, 24, 25. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to restore every man's money in his sack. There it is. He's putting the money back. And to give them provisions for the journey. And thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed from there. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money. And behold, it was in the mouth of the sack. And then he said to his brothers, My money's been returned. And behold, it's even in my sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Now listen to this. 
Oftentimes, when someone becomes a Christian, that's exactly how they respond to grace. In the same way, they look in their sack and the money's been given back, and that which they thought they had bought by believing in Jesus, by being baptized, I've made a great move in my life, and I'm a Christian now, and suddenly grace begins to be a really frightening thing. I can't pay for it, but I want to pay for it. I can't purchase this. But i got to do something. I mean, it's, it's not just free, is it? It can't possibly be free, can it? Let me tell you something about grace. At first, it's unnerving. Because you can't do a thing about it. And as human beings, man, we want to do a thing about it. We want to be able to control it. We can't. Grace is out of my control. It is the wild frontier. It's out there. It is beyond me. It's uncharted. It is beyond my capability to earn. And that leaves many a young believer saying, what if it's not all he says it is? What if there's something that I'm supposed to do that I missed? And a lot of times older believers, we do the same thing, don't we? We look at the sin in our lives and go, oh man, God is not going to forgive this one. God's grace can't be this big. Satan begins to whisper that very thing and we get discouraged. I said earlier that God's word is convicting, but listen folks, God's word is also convincing. Because the more convicted I get, the more sensitive to the sin in my life, the more aware I become that I can't earn a thing. And as a convicted man, I become a convinced man. Convinced of God's grace. Convinced of the sweetness of His forgiveness. John chapter 1 verse 16 For all of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Maybe you just need to hear that tonight. Grace upon grace. You cannot purchase God's grace because it is so huge. Grace upon grace. John says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. As I said before, we've been hammered a bit lately in our Bible studies. I personally have been challenging calls to faith and deep, straightforwardly looking at, at sin and recognizing the depravity in all of our lives. So don't miss this. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this down. Underline it, highlight it, and read it over and over this week. Grace isn't the starting point. Grace is the only point. It's not the starting point. It's the only point. It's not where you begin. It's where you live as a believer in Jesus. You live in grace. Paul put it this way. Colossians 2 verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him. What was that? As you received Him. How did I receive Him? By grace. I received Him by grace. Therefore, walk in that grace. Don't march along with the ten brothers of the law. You walk in grace. You began there, stay there. One more thing to note here. It's interesting that the money is back in the sacks of the sons of Israel. And in the same way, interesting over history, God has continued to put the silver in the sacks of the people of Israel. He has continued to provide financially. Did you know back in the Middle Ages that the Pope actually said banking is no more? For a time. For a season. He outlawed banking and usury, that is, collecting interest. And so the Christians couldn't go to Christians for banking, so they had to go to the, the Jews. And a lot of money was made. And over time, it is interesting to watch, and, and it's, it's stunning how in the history of Israel, how financially well off they have been, even in spite of all the persecution. Now that has continued too. But one of the reasons for the Third Reich and the anti-Semitism under Hitler was because the Jews were so wealthy and there was an incredible jealousy in Germany toward them because of that wealth. God has continued to put the silver back in the packs of the Jews. I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it was a Jew that financed Washington in the War of Independence. Literally took his entire life savings because this Jewish man in living on American soil realized the freedom of worship that he didn't know anywhere else. And so he bankrolled Washington's army, army in the War of Independence. And in turn, on the dollar bill, if you'll flip it over and look at the back side, if anyone has a dollar, you can do this even right now, there are 13 stars in the shape of the Star of David. And those 13 stars do not speak of the 13 colonies. They speak of the 13 sons of Israel. I thought there were 12 sons. Yeah, but Joseph had two, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
When you add them into the picture, you've got 13 sons. And it was to honor Israel, and it's on our dollar bill even today. God has continued to provide silver for the Jews, even in their blindness. Verse 29. We're almost done here. When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us, whiners, and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, We're honest men, we're not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, and one is no longer alive, and the younger is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go. But bring your youngest brother to me, so that I may know you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. Now it came about as they were emptying their sacks that behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. Joseph would not take their money even though he gave them great provision. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father Jacob said to them, now listen to Jacob. He's still not there. He still hasn't quite arrived as a man of faith. Jacob says, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Now Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. I'm a victim. It's all against me. I read this verse and the first thing that popped into my mind was, Jacob, where's your faith? Jacob, who dreamed and saw the ladder going up to heaven... With the angels ascending and descending. Jacob who spoke with God. Jacob who had this awesome, awesome, amazing connection. Joseph his son who never spoke to God but has amazing faith. Blessed is he who believes but has not seen. And here's Jacob who has seen but he does not believe. And he has this victim mentality. And you might make note of this folks. Victim mentality is the opposite of faith. If I'm a victim, I don't believe. If I, like Jacob, say the whole world is against me, everything's against me, it never goes right for me, oh, woe is me, then you are living outside of faith. Paul says, Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who's against us? Who can possibly touch me when I am walking in the grace of the Lord? Verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, you may put my two sons to death. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my care, and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If if harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair to Sheol, down to Sheol, in sorrow. Why not accept Reuben's offer? Reuben's already got two strikes against him. Reuben was in charge when Joseph was supposedly lost, killed. Reuben slept with his father's maid, Rachel's maid actually, after Rachel's death. Two big strikes against him. The trust factor ain't there. Jacob looks at Reuben and says, no way I'm going to trust you. No way I'm going to believe you. Interestingly, in the next chapter, he will trust another son. A son who begins to make a turn, who begins to come on the rise among the children of Jacob, a son named Judah, through whom we get the line of Jesus. Well, it's an intriguing story. There are more twists to come. We're going to stop here for tonight. I wanted to go on, but obviously (laughs) we can't do that. But folks, let me leave you with this. For all that we've studied tonight, for God's relationship with Israel, we see this dramatic picture of the law versus grace. And as we study Israel, we're going to go further and further into the law. You're going to see how the law works itself out in these people's lives and how devastating the law really is if you choose to live that way. And so I encourage you to learn to live by grace. The grace isn't the starting point. Grace is the only point for believers in Jesus.